This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. Big Boss Man. Ah, yes. Can't you hear me when I call? The race to the top to be the big boss man at Goldman Sachs. David Solomon chosen as the one to eventually succeed Lloyd Blankfein as CEO. Let's get more on this uh, Goldman successor story that continues to be among the most read uh, on the Bloomberg since it came out last week. Dakin Campbell is financial reporter at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. And joining Dakin is Allison Williams, senior financial research analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. She joins us from our BI headquarters in Princeton. Dakin, let's start with you. I kind of laughed coming in and I'm like, oh my God, we have all been obsessed with this story. But Goldman is an important firm in the financial community. Yes, that's right. And any successor to Lloyd Blankfein is of interest uh, to people. I mean, he's been running Goldman for 12 years. Uh, that's longer than uh, just about everybody but Jamie Dimon on Wall Street. So yeah. a change at the top of Goldman would be uh, would be new, and people are interested in, in who the new guy is. Well, let's talk, let's talk about this new guy. Who is he, and what do we know about him? Yeah, so his, this is David Solomon. He's, he's now the number two to, to Blankfein, and when, he's, when Blankfein de- finally decides to step aside, which we don't know when that will be, but when he does, David is the guy. Uh, David's a longtime investment banker. He, came, he joined Goldman as a partner from Bear Stearns in 99, I believe, uh, came up through leveraged finance, and then he ran Goldman's investment banking division for over a decade until he got this, uh, this position. I think it was announced December 2016. So, Allison, this is a guy who's certainly well-known uh, internally to the folks at Goldman and well-known to Wall Street. He is, and I think that you know there's a lot of talk about his his banking background. You know, Lloyd sort of had come up through a trader, but I think you know if you look at the firm, all parts of the firm have prospered under Lloyd. In fact, some might argue that the trading has been the weaker part, although certainly that's due to a lot of the regulatory challenges, a lot of the secular um, challenges. But I think that um, you know. It, just taking a step back, when you look at Goldman, just the, the continuity of a very strong and consistent culture, um, the, the, the focus on risk management, the focus on technology are, are two things that they um, talk about. They're things that have helped them um, be successful, and I think that consistent culture is, is something that gives investors a fair amount of comfort that um, you know, sort of mitigates the succession risk. Right, and you certainly see it in the share price. I'm just taking a look at the last three days or since all this news started per- percolating. Um, uh, and the shares have moved higher on each day, and they're up about 1.2 percent. I mean, Dakin, what does this mean? What's what's going to be the what, what's going to change at Goldman uh, under somebody like Solomon versus Lloyd Blankfein? I think, from all I can understand from people I'm talking to at this point, uh, Solomon will be charged with continuing what's already been put in place. So, uh, you may remember in September, Harvey Schwartz, of all people, uh, presented Goldman's growth plan, $5 billion across a number of uh, initiatives over the next three years. Mm-hmm. So, this is a, a firm that for years, uh, you know, husbanded capital, really. Uh, cut costs and didn't think 
uh, together as a firm about generating revenue. Now they are in a growth mindset. And so David Sol as Lloyd steps aside, David Solomon will be the guy that sort of will be expected to generate growth at Goldman. Allison, come on in because you you know you look at just like Dakin, you look at Goldman, you look at all the, of its competitors. What will be kind of the key challenges for Goldman going forward? I think the key challenge is really going to be, um, you know, I guess deciding how how big they're going to be in terms of this consumer effort, this online effort. I think that's been the main. Uh, deviation. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess, you know, the, the two big things that happened under Lloyd, one of which had, he had no control over was, you know, sort of the change in regulation. Um, and, and again, that will probably be something that uh, will be key under Solomon, you know, will that sort of take a step back? And so it was sort of a challenge for Lloyd, but could be sort of a t- tailwind uh, for um, Solomon. But, um and you know, and then in terms of direction of the firm, looking at this uh, consumer business and going to retail, that was I think the, you know sort of the, the the biggest change for Goldman. Obviously, it's a very small part of this business; it's incremental. But how big uh, will that be? And then just in terms of timing, I think the you know the the interesting thing to note is there's there's a lot of talk about why now. Right. I think if you think about when um, Lloyd stepped in, so that was uh, sort of mid 2006. He was sort of come he came in sort of late in the cycle. He helped to, um, you know, perhaps repair the firm for the, the downturn that was coming, even though, you know, it was, it was a while before things sort of cracked in the environment. Um, but again, you don't want to, I think, make those transitions, um, you know, during a time of tumult or during a time of, um, you know, bad, right. econo- bad economy. So, you know, if you look at sort of the timing, he came in, he served, he helped guide the firm um, through the crisis, and then, you know, has led the firm through this uh, many year long bull market, and now um, perhaps Solomon, you know, stepping in and and getting into place ahead of um, you know potentially the next downturn. Just got about twenty seconds left, taken. Yeah, I think we when we talk about Goldman, at least me and the people I talk to, we talk about trading versus investment banking. Lloyd was a trader, mm-hmm. and he oversaw great, huge profits in trading. Uh, Harvey Schwartz was his CFO uh, in terms of figuring out that business and bringing in big deals. David Solomon is an investment banker, so he's sort of bringing Goldman p- maybe back to the investment banking days of Hank Polson and John Weinberg and, and those folks. Taking Campbell of Bloomberg News, Allison Williams of Bloomberg Intelligence, right here on Bloomberg Radio. The Healthy Nevada Project is a community-based population health study launched in 2016, uses genetic, clinical, environmental, and socioeconomic data to really understand the relationship between those factors and their effects on overall health. Let's get more with Jim Metcalf. He's chief data scientist at the Healthy Nevada Project on the phone from Reno. Jim, nice to have you here on this Monday. Um, I did the basics, but tell us a little bit more about what you guys are doing uh, at the Healthy Nevada Project. Sure. Um, uh, this is a first-of-its-kind initiative uh, between renowned health, local health care provider here in Reno, uh, the Desert Research Institute that uh, has 
literally decades of environmental data. Uh, the Nevada Governor's of Office of Economic Development and genomics company Helix, uh, as you said, uh, we launched the project in 2016 uh, with a pilot project of 10,000, and incredibly, the pilot phase enrolled 10,000 participants in just 48 hours. So there's a, a lot of interest in this area and a lot of excitement uh, in the state over being on such a, a cutting-edge project like this. All right, so 10,000 participants, you said, in the first hour. Uh, you've been a couple hour, a couple years into, it sounds like, this project. Um, tell me what you're finding out. It's an awful lot of data, and you've obviously, I think you're working with SAS, uh, which is based in North Carolina, a big yes. software company. Tell me how they're helping you kind of go through the data. Sure. So, so a, a, a simple example, uh, Reno has forest fires in the summer. We have temperature inversions in the winter, both of which are bad for cardiopulmonary health, uh, but how bad? St statistical modeling uh, combining air quality data from the EPA and from hospital admissions suggests there are large effects on the healthcare system from these kinds of sentinel bad air events. Uh, we're seeing in some instances that there is a doubling of impact on, on, on the healthcare system when we get a forest fire. And so the question is, um, is there a, ge a genetic component for someone to have a propensity to, to go to the hospital after they breathe in the smoke from a forest fire. Uh, SAS software is being used to, com to combine all of those data. So, so we're looking at the environmental data combined with the daily count for people who present at the ED uh, with problems tr trying to breathe. Uh, then ultimately we'll work the DNA component into that uh, as, as we begin to process that. All right, so it's interesting. So you're trying to find out if somebody is going to be more susceptible to maybe a certain environmental condition and maybe hopefully be preemptive in terms of care or put them out of harm's way? Uh, quite possibly. Uh, you know, imagine having a system where we know that somebody might react badly uh, and we send them a text saying, don't go outside uh, because it's going to be a bad air day tomorrow. And, and we know that they're more prone to react to that. It's interesting. Um, I have to tell you, when I was reading through and getting ready to talk with you, my one concern was, and I feel like this, uh, especially so whenever it involves DNA data, um, that could be used and abused. As, it, as people get to know more about that and it's tapped into or put into kind of a healthcare database. Tell me what, what's, what about the privacy concerns? How do you protect that data? Sure. So that's probably the topmost concern that we have. And um, we have pro processes in place. We, we have audits in place. We have logging. Uh, we're a business associate of the hospital, which is a HIPAA requirement. And uh, we're working with our, our partner, Helix, uh, who also has appropriate protections in place. And so there, there really is nothing that's connected other than a number uh, for that. So, so the, the uh, privacy concerns uh, are, I think, are being addressed. Okay. But eventually, right? I mean, if you're, if you're hoping to notify people, like, don't go outside or something, there obviously is a, a direct digital link back to somebody based on their data. Sure. So, so there's, there's processes in place for that, too. There's a, a group called the Institutional Review Board that would have to review all of that. Um, and, and so we're, we're quite careful when it comes to uh, th things like that. What's the goal of this, this mission, this project? Sure. So, so what we'd like to be able to do uh, is do some great science and improve the population health of the state. Uh, Nevada ranks near the bottom uh, compared to the rest of the U.S. in terms of public health funding, 
research and health outcomes. Uh, for example, people die earlier in Nevada from pancreatic cancer than the rest of the U.S., and the rate of drug-induced deaths is seven times the national average. We think that we can help change that. Uh, working closely with uh, towns throughout the state, our, our program hopes to convert data into evidence-based plans to address health care priorities uh, to meet these uh, specific uh, community needs. Um, you mentioned, I think you've got about 50,000 uh, Nevadans. You said 10,000 signed up right away, but I think, uh, just looking at some research, that you've got about 50,000. How many people do you really, I mean, the goal is to get everybody signed up. Just got about 20 seconds left here. Sure. So uh, this this Thursday, Brian Sandoval, the governor of the state, is going to announce a kickoff of an additional 40,000 Nevadans uh, to have their DNA studied. All right. Interesting. Yeah, go ahead, please say, ultimately, we'd like to get to 500,000 if possible. All right. Interesting. And um, it'd be also fascinating to see kind of how, how it changes maybe either health care or how it makes eventually the people of Nevada um, healthier. Jim, thanks for your time. I uh, appreciate it. Jim Metcalf is chief data scientist at the Healthy Nevada Project, joining us on the phone from Reno, Nevada. Uh, yes, indeed. She does. He does. We all do work hard for our money. And uh, when it comes to investing, we want smart ideas. Uh, Jeannie Wyatt has some thoughts. Chief Executive Officer, Chief Investment Officer at South Texas Money Management. Roughly $3.5 billion in assets under management. Joining us on the phone from San Antonio, Texas. And I know you do have some specific names that you find interesting, Jeannie, at this point. But I also, looking at your research, you don't like Bitcoin, but you do like stocks. What do you make of the conversation <laughs> ongoing conversation, looking at Bitcoin, blockchain, all that good stuff? Well, uh, it's, it's an interesting conversation, um, but, you know, we have a, we have a price chart of, of an asset class, and we, we ask people, what asset class do you think this is? Uh, long-term price charts of several different asset classes, and basically it's go it's go, going sideways, very very volatile, and the answer is it's currencies. So whether Bitcoin is your currency or another cryptocurrency, currencies long-term are not great investments. They're volatile. Uh, they tend long term to be trendless. So, so the cryptocurrencies, and there's several of them. Their price performance on the upside and the downside has been very, very similar. And so, you know, you have to. Your timing has to be right. You know, your timing has to be right, getting in and getting out. And so, we feel that the broad market common stocks are a better bet. All right. So, but your your clients are asking you about it. Oh yes, I think everyone's clients are asking them about it, and um, you know we're not we're not being naysayers that a cryptocurrency or cryptocurrencies are not legitimate. It's just it's very preliminary, and again, just fundamentally, you get more yield, more yield, and we think long term better returns in in the stock market. All right, so let's talk about the stock market. We were mentioning at the top of our broadcast. You know, whoa, whoa, what a big kind of bounce 
bounce back in stocks after a volatile start to the year where we saw quite a rally and then we saw quite a sell-off, you know, right. an actual 10% correction. Right now you've got tech stocks. Uh, the NASDAQ is up uh, about 10% on the year. You've got the S&P 500 also higher on the year, now up about 4%. And the Dow, I think we're looking at a gain. Let me just check here on the Bloomberg, up almost 2%. So we've seen a bounce right. back. Um, right. When you look at names, uh, you like some plain old vanilla names like a Kroger in the supermarket uh, you know, section, which has been beaten yes. up. They're facing a lot of yes. competition from the likes of Amazon exactly. and others. Stock's down 12%, exactly. and Kroger just mm-hmm. delivered a week earnings forecast last week. Why do you like it? Yes, because we buy, it's very important to have this context, we buy both value stocks and accelerating growth stocks. So we buy stocks that are very cheap, you know, very low valuations, good dividend yields, low price to cash flow, low PEs, as well as growth stocks where they're typically very highly valued, very high PEs, maybe no dividend. And the reason we put together both value and growth stocks are because they are very, very consistent hedges to one another. Value stocks tend to have their own cycle, and growth cycles have their own cycle. And fortunately, they're counter-cyclical, whether it's in a quarter, a year, or a month. And whether you're buying large, mid, small cap, or even international stocks, you've always had that long-term relationship. So like last year, clearly was a, a growth year, very narrow growth year with just, you know, the fangs, mm-hmm. the famous fangs pushing the market. But the year before, 2016, was a value market where value outperformed. And so they tend to go back and forth. So timing, timing when to get in in value and when to get into growth would be impossible, like market timing is impossible. So we blend the two together. We have, uh, you know, what we call very, very ugly stocks. Um, and, well, let me just and ask again. you. Let me just ask you, Jeannie, because I'm looking at you know Kroger last year was down almost 21 percent. The year before it was down 17 percent. I get buying it for the dividend, but in a space where we're not quite sure who's going to be the winners, and that supermarket business mm. is such a low margin business. Um, I understand that it's been beaten up. It's maybe potentially a great value play, but does right, it make you right. a little bit nervous about the bigger, broader story that's going on with supermarkets? No. No. Um, it is, and again, we haven't been putting Kroger, new money into Kroger for very long. And you can kind of tell when a stock is out of favor uh, because the, the, the stock keeps discounting the same old news. And their recent earnings report at Kroger actually was above consensus. And again, the But their forecast, their forecast was below consensus. Right. But they're being very conservative. The street's being very conservative. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in all of the the staple sector, the grocery sector, or, you know, those companies that are supposed to to hold up in very volatile, weak markets, all of the all of the stocks in that space are very expensive. But Kroger at about a 10 times multiple of this year's earnings. Again, a very, you know, strong balance sheet, a nice dividend yield, mm-hmm. and trading at only five times cash flow. Right. 
cash flow on value stocks is so critical. And this company has a lot of cash flow and a projected increase in cash flow. And to be trading at a multiple, it is very, very out of favor. So right. we know value stocks, and that's kind of the the profile of value stocks. They, you know, there's all these worries and worries, and then there'll be a catalyst. Right. Uh, it, it, this stock might go down to sideways for a long time. But value stocks, when there's that catalyst, maybe a boost in their operating margin or, um, you know, an acquisition or something that starts working. And when a company has this much cash flow, there's a lot of safety. There's a lot of safety in that. So the the upside on deep value stocks tends to come quickly and be above average. So Kroger's, no question, a deep value stock. All right, we got to run. Good to check in with you. Jeannie Wyatt, she's Chief Executive Officer, Chief Investment Officer at South Texas Money Management, roughly $3.5 billion in assets under management. Jeannie joining us on the phone from San Antonio, Texas. Well, if you're someone hoping to be driving a Tesla Model 3, you hope to be on a road where you are driving a Model 3 uh, very soon. But as you know, production problems mean people are still waiting and waiting and waiting. And that's led to some Tesla stalkers. Let's talk about this story. Love it, love it, love it. Tom Randall is Deputy Sustainability Editor here at Bloomberg News. He joins us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Um First of all, what's going <laughs> Tesla stalkers? This isn't like stalking Elon, but they're stalking Model 3s, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I've, I've covered Tesla for a while now, and so I've grown used to a little bit of like super fandom out there. But this is, it's reached a point where it's kind of unreal, you know, investors and short sellers and, you know, fans and reservation holders, they're all trying to figure out when Tesla is going to be able to start producing the Model 3 in numbers that they have said that they are going to. And what it's what it's done is people are doing going to outrageous lengths to try and figure out where things are at. They are unleashing drones outside of the factory in Fremont, California, you know, pouring over satellite data. Uh, you know, there you've got, you know, legions of people online on Reddit and uh, Tesla, uh, various forums uh, for Tesla that, you know, they're counting every single vehicle identification number that is being spotted out in the wild to try to estimate where things are at. I love it. It's like what, what investors had fun guys do to try and figure out what's going on in China, right? They're counting the electricity usage and all that things. I mean, this is what people are doing to kind of get an idea of the production uh, levels at Tesla. Yep. We, we, too, have come up with our own model, right? Yeah. Or you uh, guys have. Yep. Here at Bloomberg, uh, we created our own model. And we our model is based on vehicle identification numbers. Uh, you know, these are unique strings of numbers that are assigned to every new vehicle that's produced in the United States. And we, we have two data sets. One is, um, you know, Tesla, uh, car companies, before they start production on cars, they have to register big batches of these VINs with uh, safety regulators. So we figured out a way to ping safety regulators and see exactly how many uh, regist- registered VINs they have at any given time. And then separately, we've created kind of a crowdsource database where we are, uh, we, we began with what has already been done on, on social media online and took all of those VINs. And then we we also started having uh, owners report their VINs directly to us. And so we've been plotting those out. And we created a model based on those two data sets to, to kind of guess at how many um, cars have been produced at any given time or how many uh, they're producing in uh, 
per week. And what do you guys come up with? Well, so so far they've had they've had a rough time. Um, <laughs> you know, they're still <laughs> they're still in production hell, as Elon Musk would say. Um, and in February, you know, one very interesting thing is in February, toward late February, we saw production fall pretty pretty hard, yeah. uh, which is unusual during a production ramp. And we weren't quite sure what was going on with the model. Well, just yesterday, um, Bloomberg got confirmation from Tesla that Tesla had shut down the factory for about a week to do some upgrades on some machinery in the Fremont car factory. So our model was able to pick that up. Um, so we'll, we'll see. We, we don't know until the end of the quarter how accurate our model is going to end up being. But I, I feel like it's become a joke, not joke, you know, with Elon Musk coming out and saying, hey, folks, this is going to be our production levels. And then he comes out a few months later and says, well, maybe not so much. Um, but investors kind of take it in stride. And so do potential car owners. You talk about Ross Gerber, who's been a frequent guest on Bloomberg Radio. I mean, he's the guy who's been sending out drones, right? Uh, no, he hasn't oh. sent out drones. But, uh, you know, he, he, he runs, a, runs a wealth management fund. They have about $10 million dollars. Tesla stock. So he is, you know, he has his own reservation. He says he's checking his email multiple times a day just to to look for that that message from Tesla, uh, but he's also been sending his employees out to uh, delivery lots in Marina uh, <laughs> Marina del Rey in California to count cars. You know, he's been surveying people online, to, you know, to see whose reservation number has come up and done these sorts of things. So he owns a bunch of Tesla Tesla shares. That's right. That's right. Ten million dollars. Ten million dollars. Right? Yep. So he wants to really know what's going on. <laughs> yeah, he wants he, the truth. He and his investors. Yeah. What are some other stalkers doing? Oh, uh, uh, you know, one of my favorite is uh, Bazi Tatarovic. Um, He's kind of a car parts savant uh, online. You know, he he will tear car, uh, cars down and and find you know what cars use the same parts for you know you know really obscure niche uh, components of the cars. And so he started uh, looking into Tesla's um, import data uh, for various parts that they outsource. Uh, so specifically, he looked at um, you know wheel covers and uh, 12 volt batteries uh, that are specific to the Model Three. And back in early December, he realized, you know, at that point that Tesla had uh, an issue because he, you know, he, as he said, that if you've only brought in 2,000 of a part that's needed for a car, you can't be making more than 2,000 cars right. until you import more. So it's, it, a, it's akin to like talking to the Apple suppliers, right, <laughs> to get an idea of like how much demand that they're asking for, right. for different component pieces. Um, so net net, is there any kind of takeaway from all of this? Well, I, you know, Tesla's, this is an absolutely existential issue for Tesla. It has has to get Model 3 production going. You know, it spent about $3.5 billion last year getting ready for this moment. And, you know, it has half a million people with reservations who are waiting for these cars. So, it, yeah. you know, it has it has what no other car maker has, which is, you know, this kind of insane desire, insane kind of natural hype. But they've got to be able to build these cars. Especially when you see was at the International Auto Show last week when you have Porsche and others really coming out with some new EV models. Um, Tom Randall, great story. I put some stuff out on Twitter at Carol Mass. Everybody, check it out. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio.
Yes, indeed, everybody. Time for the drive to the close on this Monday afternoon. Registered investment advisor Alan Lance, director of research at LanceGlobal.com, president of Alan B. Lance and Associates, joining us on the phone from Toledo, Ohio. Alan, nice to have you back. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you, Carol. How are you? I'm doing okay. It's a Monday, trying to get through. Um, interesting market. We had a nice, uh, or bullish, I should say, uh, rally in stocks last week. Today, we're kind of bouncing around a little bit. I feel like, you know, we're in the middle of earnings, waiting for the next round, uh, and so on. What What is your thoughts on this overall market environment right now? Well, it seems like a lot of give and take. Uh, you know, one week, uh, you know, Investors are looking at the glass half empty and, and are worried about uh, inflation and and tariffs and, and a trade war and and you're able to pick up some some good quality uh, you know bargains and then uh, you have a week like last week especially near the end and and the opening today where um, you know taking some money off the table where things might get a little ahead of themselves so I think everything's condensed you know week to week where we used to have months and quarters of these kind of moves uh, we're starting to get that volatility back in both directions where the last few years it was just on the upside. So, yeah. so I think I think it would present some opportunities. Well, let's talk about that because when you guys kicked into the new year, just looking at your research, your long short portfolio was 96% long, 4% cash. Uh, and from what I understand, you guys reduced some of your cash, right? Kind of buying into some of the weakness? Yeah, definitely. I think it was a, a situation where uh, uh, some good quality companies, uh, you know, moved down, and and uh, we took advantage of uh, finally having a correction of ten percent. Uh, it's been a, a few years since since we had that, and that's what you're supposed to do is buy, uh, you know, into weakness. And and some of the things we talked about, uh, sectors like energy, um, you know, a few months back uh, uh, did particularly well last month. So so we started uh, uh, taking profits in, in that area. So so it's been a a give and take, uh, depending on what sector you're in, and and uh, I, I think that's what the investor has to do. They have to be more proactive and not react to the market, but take advantage of these swings instead of being played by them. Well, let's drill down into that a little bit. No pun, forgive me about the energy, but so you guys have been selling off some of your energy names. Yeah, I mean. Schlumberger, which we talked about a few mm-hmm. months ago, you know, moved from this low 60s to um, you know close to 80 dollars uh, last month. So, so taking some profit as as it reached uh, or was approaching uh, its old highs, you know, made some sense. Uh, uh, we haven't bought it back, but it hit 63 last week, so that's right. probably been a good entry point. But uh, <laughs> yeah. we weren't smart enough to to buy it at that level. But again, in the low 60s or below, I think uh, long term you're not going to go wrong with a company like Schlumberger and and take a advantage of those swings, you know, as much as you can. Well, it's interesting, too. Telecom is another area that you, from what I understand, have been, I guess, were one of your biggest new purchases over the past few months. But have you been tempering, have you been pulling back a little bit on that? Yeah, I mean, Verizon and AT&T have done really well. I, mm-hmm. I, you know, we still like like CenturyLink, uh, CTL, from the standpoint, uh, uh, it really hasn't done anything uh, uh, for, for a, a number of years and, and it has a, a, a decent dividend. So, so I think, and, and there's some foreign uh, telecoms that we like. Uh, so that that's going to be more uh, a collected group, not not buying the overall sector like well, like with energy. So help me out here. So you said that you were putting more cash to work. Um, on some of the dips, where did you commit new money that you're still holding on to and that you will for some time? Yeah, the utilities. I mean, they've been um, getting you know decimated with you know, worries of higher interest rates, and and you have companies like uh, you know, Scana that has gone you know from uh, seventy five dollars a year ago to uh, you know in the thirties, and and uh, even Edison uh, International that was. Uh, 
as, as far as over eighty dollars a share, and and uh, we picked up some last week um, in, in the high fifties. Uh, you know, good yields because the stocks have dropped off so much. Uh, low expectations. We like that. Just like energy this summer had lower expectations, and and we're we're, we're kind of uh, the forgotten sector. I think uh, utilities are going to surprise investors. You know, on the upside, and and not have that much risk because uh, you know the expectations are so low. So so that's one of the sectors that we're adding to and in, into in, in new lows here, uh, like we did with energies, you know, six, nine months ago. Let, let, Alan, remind all of our listeners, too, that kind of your strategy and what you're looking for. I mean, what are some of the things that you're looking for that to, to decide whether or not to kind of buy into a new name? Well, I learned under Sir John Templeton, so we're value conscious, but, yeah. uh, you know, it's not just a matter of value. You know, we'll go with growth. I mean, uh, some of our largest positions are, are Apple and, and Google, so so it's not a, a situation where uh, we're just looking at uh, undervalued names, but more so on a, on a relative basis, uh, buying when a sector's or a company's out, out of favor, uh, looking at the risk-reward of three to four to one, and then um, always um, managing the risk. So if we mm-hmm. do make a mistake, try to get out early enough and, and redeploy the money and, and, into something else that might be a better idea. Is GE something that you like right now? Just got about 20 seconds real quickly. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, we, we haven't uh, pulled the trigger. We own some of the preferreds when, when it was down in the teens yeah. uh, at 25 par. But on the common, I, I would be careful. But if it went down further, it might be something attractive for the long term. All right. Good to check in with you. Right now, uh, shares of GE ch- uh, selling at $15.13 a share. Stock is down about 13% this year. Alan Lance, thank you so much. Director of Research at LanceGlobal.com, President of Allen B. Lance & Associates, joining us on this Monday from Toledo, Ohio. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.